Hello, and welcome to, well, I don't know what to say welcome to, because we have decided after my experiments with the daily podcasting and our experiments with the bi-monthly podcasting, that from March, i.e. in about three weeks, we're going to start doing things a bit more regularly Mm. in a slightly different format, a few more interviews and big discussion topics and be a bit more structured, and we're going to make 2017 the year of the podcast. So bigger and better then? Bigger and better? I'm not sure about bigger, but better. Better. A bit slicker. You'll have more like uh, undertitles. Slipped into German then. Undertitles and graphics and interviews. And hopefully the first one we'll kick off with, because I've got the interviews in progress, Mm. is uh, some interviews with people who run tech cooperatives and startup cooperatives, which I find very interesting. But that's to come. So we're going to basically do a bit of a, a bit of a rounding off and have another kind of links show just to sort of clear out the closet a bit and have a fresh start for 2017. So, Kate, what is the first topic you would like to discuss? I have some good news, actually. Um, I'd like to talk about hackathons. I went to a hackathon recently. It was a women's hackathon looking at women's issues and it was the rather oddly named Lady Problems Hackathon. You may have heard of it. It's a hackathon that's been around a lot of the major cities in different countries from the Middle East to India to Europe to America, etc., etc., Sydney. Um, And basically the theme of it was to look at um, issues that affect women and women entrepreneurs, and it had sort of some subcategories. So it was looking at things like safety, health, education, um, entrepreneurship, or things that stop women from being, you know, running their own businesses or being entrepreneurial. And Chris and I went along on the first day, and people were kind of, you know, putting out some ideas. And I joined with another woman called Jessica, who brought along an idea for a product. And we decided to work on that product together. And the product, I'll tell you very sort of succinctly, I guess. It's basically... I think we're all adults here. Yeah. No, no, that wasn't the problem. It was just it would take a while to explain it. It's basically a um, camera for filming vaginas. The the reason being that... um, I think maybe inspecting is a better word than filming. Yeah. <laughs> um, taking photographs, perhaps. Um, the reason being that, um, you know, it's one thing that marks us as women, being, of course, plenty of other things, but um, it's one part of our body we can't actually see unless you have spectacularly good dexterity. And whilst you could arguably use your phone, and you may recall if you're sort of reading up on historical feminism of the 70s, there was a big movement of using mirrors and... Um, as a, a means for women to see the intimate parts of their body. And, um, you know, but the reality is that we haven't really extended past that idea of the mirror and the, and the lamp or the light or the torch. So the idea was to make a... Um, well, to push an idea of basically it would be a connected device. It would be able to be recorded. Um, the photographs could be shared remotely, for example, with a gynecologist in a remote, if you were in a remote setting. could be used as a means to detect perhaps STDs, um, to look on the um, healing of stitches or if someone had had some kind of surgery, 
postpartum perhaps or post um, someone had been transgendered and had some reconstructive surgery there, something like that, or just women wanting to equate themselves with their bodies. And interestingly, one of the things we discovered was that to make this work involved some quite cheap hardware. And in fact, Mm. an element of the camera to the phone looks a bit like the arm of this uh, mic pop shield here. And you can actually get these cameras that can connect to Android phones for five euros. Yeah, and that's fantastic. obviously consumer price, yeah. not... not um, and they're mainly used for pipes and things like that, actually, yeah. Yeah. ironically. Drainage and yeah. filling drainage and things like that, looking for blockages. So the idea was, you know, that we would work on an idea. And bear in mind, the two of us, Jessica and myself, we're not coders, we're not programmers, we're not engineers, we don't have any of those skills. If you asked us to make a... Um, you know, a program, we would not be able to do it. But we had an idea and we thought, well, we can pitch it the best we can. We can look at who the audience is. We can look at the rationale. We can look at the, you know, the cost and the scalability and all those sorts of things. And we're able to do so. Um, we pitched the idea amongst a group of other women. That's probably hmm, maybe 10 pitches. And surprisingly, we were quite flabbergasted to found that we won. So um, the prize is not, you know, a million dollars or anything like that. What? Sadly, there was no monetary prize. But being a, you know, being a freelancer, we were kind of like, oh. But the prize is actually a mentoring, um, what would you call it, Chris? A incubator slash accelerator program, something of that nature, um, that starts in March. Um, it's a online program, so we're not entirely clear how that's going to work with people in different time zones and whether we'll get to engage. But we will. Um, we'll see, and we'll certainly keep you on on track with that because we're not entirely sure what's going to happen and how. Definitely. But it's a. It, it shows that you know tech can be accessible to other to everyone. You don't. Um, I think. There's been a lot of work, particularly looking at uh, hackathons, as how can we make them more accessible to different audiences and different participants. And I think this one demonstrated that it was we were able to make it yep. make it accessible to us. Bravo, well done. And Thank as you. a witness to the pitches, I would say that yours was certainly the most interesting. <laughs> um, okay, uh, I, my topic next um, is actually something that's been sort of. I've been working on the past couple of months and I'm about to release the second part. In fact, you're going to see a lot more writing from me very soon. Um, it's uh, more of that maybe at the next episode, the install, first installment of the new season, shall we say. Mm. But first I just want to, so I have been um, writing about slowly my uh, switches from macOS to Windows and Linux. Um, and I have the first part of my roundup with Windows um, and, and I guess general summary and, and I actually got to caveat this because the Linux article which should come out next week or this week or the same few days apart from when this episode is out um, I caveat that by firstly saying that um, since my use, uh, first use of Windows I started installing the Insider builds and found that actually there's been a lot of improvements to some of the problems I had so uh, a lot of the problems I was actually experiencing in this blog post uh, got repaired, uh, especially the um, working with dual screens and high-resolution screens. But the one problem that still remains, uh, which is my biggest issue with working with Windows, is developing on Windows in a cross-platform environment is just horrible. Uh, I spend so much time uh, on workarounds and path names and just, yeah. It's actually been very interesting because you realise how many p- 
people in the kind of area I develop in, sort of web technologies, open technologies, how many people assume everyone uses a Mac? <laughs> Not even Linux, a Mac. Um, that's been really interesting. And I have seen um, a, a lot of eff- more effort actually recently going into supporting other platforms better. I did a talk recently at FOSDEM. Uh, I did two talks, and one of them was about Electron, the kind of cross-platform framework for creating desktop applications in JavaScript. And they have gone leaps and bounds to actually make it better on Linux and Windows. So people are starting to notice again, I think, because Apple are starting to become a bit sterile and Microsoft are actually becoming more innovative. I think a lot of people are suddenly going, oh, hang on a minute, maybe we should actually make developing on Windows a better experience. But it's still a pain. Um, And sort of in relation to that article, there was also um, an article from... O'Reilly, interestingly, uh, from Brian Jepson. I know I'm not 100% sure who he is. <laughs> oh, I know that name. Yeah. Uh, do you? No, I think mm. you're thinking of the Jepson tests, maybe, which no, is something else. No, no. Okay, he <laughs> is. I still don't know who he is. Who is he? Ah, he's. Oh, he works for O'Reilly. Okay, oh. that was not worth the wait. But anyway, um, <laughs> so a lot of people said to me, oh, but now Microsoft are injecting the window, the sorry, Windows subsystem, <laughs> injecting the uh, Ubuntu Linux subsystem into Windows 10. Doesn't that solve your problems? Hey, yes and no. It's actually a very uh, interesting uh, idea that you can run basically a kind of wrapped, it's sort of a virtual machine, but without the overhead of a virtual machine, a wrapped Ubuntu and SUSE Linux apparently as well now, inside of Windows. But the problem is, the main problem with it is it still operates in very much a kind of its own world and trying to access, say for example, I install Git in the Linux subsystem and I want to then run that version of Git in a Windows program, it's doesn't really work um and i get the feeling that those uh those issues may be ironed out but at the moment it's still not ideal but there's this interesting article on o'reilly from brian jepson about the journey to how linux ended up in part of windows or as the subtitle goes from linux is a cancer to windows subsystem for linux which (laughs) shows a real change in microsoft generally Uh, it's actually very interesting um so yeah that's my first discussion back to you kate yeah. Well, unless you have anything to say on that topic, of course. <laughs> so I'm not, sure if, not sure if you do. No, okay. Not quite my area. Yeah. Um, diabetes is perhaps the biggest growing area in terms of tech health um, or biotech health, however you want to term it, because, you know, statistically the numbers of people with diabetes or pre-diabetes, which again is, a, you know, the precursor, is growing in every country. Um, and therefore... VCs and, you know, people that predict the future. I'm not sure what that that term is. What do you call those people? Soothsayers. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) There is a term. It's like trend hunters. It's something like that. They're basically saying, you know, this is the biggest health crisis that's going to hit us besides, I guess, obesity. And um, therefore, they're looking at technical ways to solve it. And... By that, I'll use a big caveat. What we're actually talking about is ways to diagnose, ways to manage it, treat it, not to cure it. We're not suggesting, you know, that you can cure diabetes type 1. Type 2 has obviously got different analytics and different ways of treatment. Um, so, you know, I am 
what I did was um, a few weeks ago, I sort of sat down and said, okay, I'm going to spend a couple of hours and do some research and actually work out where we're at, particularly in regard to um, using technology and wearable technology particularly. Um, we'd seen recently that the, um, there's been a growth, and I'm just going to open my laptop so I can give you some terminology that's correct. Well, you know, to start with, there's a significant growth in people that are creating um, apps for diabetes. So, you know, apps that can um, be used to monitor diabetes. That um, is a disturbing picture. It looks like a slug in your body. Yeah, I quite liked it. Um, I think it's a pancreas, actually. Okay, all right. <laughs> then we've got things like um, products that are used to um, to check the glucose levels of the blood, like my, my Dario's products. Um, they have a little portable um, modular pinprick kind of um, glucose meter that enables you to check your... Um, your glucose levels from your phone and I'll put the picture up because it's a lot easier to if you see the picture you'll go yeah oh. um, is that cross-platform because I was actually just looking yes. strangely for this podcast uh, into microphones you can connect to a phone mm. and it seems that with a lot of these devices and that is an, an iPhone in the screenshot they don't work with Android which is a shame I think this one's cross-platform yeah okay. um, and they're an Israeli company Madaro um they do some really interesting work. But then you've got your connected glucose monitors. and We saw one last night, we didn't did. we? We did. We actually a party and we saw someone wearing one, which is interesting. And the thing to say about a lot of this stuff is, um, is not only what is, what is interesting is what tech's been able to do, is that at parallel at the same time there's been a massive maker community of people that are actually looking at ways to manage... Um, monitor and so on, diabetes. People that have had the condition or their children or what have you long term are saying, well, you know, they've actually used the hashtag on social media, we are not waiting or we're tired of waiting because they were tired of waiting for solutions that they felt were suitable mm. for them. Despite the big buzz of, um, of diabetes, there's been only one connected to, um, sorry, I'll, I'll rephrase that, one diabetes connected device in 2015 that was approved and three in 2016. And this gives you an idea, really, of how long this takes. It takes years to get this stuff through. Hmm. Um, and then we've got... So what, what was happening parallel to that was a big biohacking kind of community. And the open artificial pancreas system, the idea that we could use technology as a way that people could monitor their own their own glucose levels and whatever else they wanted to do. And the kind of the key people behind this have been Night Scout. Um, and what they've done, I'm just looking at my notes here, um, was create not only the continuous glucose monitor, but also a DIY transmitter and um, free and open source code so that people could use this. It could be shared on the cloud. People could compare their levels and, um, you know, consumers, health consumers could, you know, work together on this kind of stuff. And I guess the, ne the, the logical conclusion of that, or the logical step, the next step that we're seeing, and this one won't surprise anyone, good old AI. Um, no surprises there, machine learning, AI, and using that as a means to, um, I guess, get data from people's, um, people's monitoring to be able to make predictive Is there much, much concern at this kind of being hijacked by insurance companies and things like that? Or? Look, the thing is that they already do it. I mean, mm. it's not, this stuff is not new. 
There is, like, people are always like, oh, you know, if I monitor myself, it's going to be, you know, stolen or someone's going to do something. But it's already happening. This stuff is not yeah. new. This is and not stealing. It's actually... Uh, and the, yeah. the also, I, I'd also caveat that with by the time it goes to, you know, usually your third or fourth source um, who's bought the data from, data from someone else, it's anonymized as well. So, you know, but mm. look, look, I'm not trying to dismiss the issue. I think it is a significant issue. I have read about the sale of particularly medical records on the black market and, and written about it. It's actually quite, quite to scary. To do what with? What would you buy them for? They use it to, they use the, um, well, if you've got, um, your ex-medical record says you have, I don't know, say a heart condition, they can use that and buy medical um, oh, discount okay. medical products or um, okay. drugs cheaper cheaper because wow. you need to be have the thing who would have thunk it so yeah I'll put the link into that article too it's, it's certainly not my experience but it is interesting and I've not you know so you know I guess what we're seeing now is that that nexus between demand and what's available is getting closer hmm. but again the FDA kind of issues of uh, are coming you know as an issue and I think the bigger issue there is one that a lot of people are thinking about and bear in mind that you know the kind of people we're talking about that are doing biohacking at this level are not people that have just jumped into it they these are people that research they're thoughtful people they read data they read scientific journals they talk to people they're not just going oh i'm gonna do something to fuck up my body you know there's a high level of analytic thought in this and people are starting to go well you know um is the way the FDA works wrong. Is there other ways we could do this? Are there better ways? Ah, okay. Particularly for startups. That's interesting. So we could even come into like, uh, I don't think I've got any topics. Like, Well, actually I do, but I haven't prepared anything. Maybe the next time when I've solidified the ideas a bit more, but I've been to quite a few um, blockchain mm. and distributed, mm. decentralized mm. Uh, meetups the past right. month. And, I mean, that could be a way of doing it. Definitely. But uh, I hadn't really think to prepare any ideas around that, actually. But um, there's been quite a lot of interesting meetups here in Berlin recently that mm. I might it might be worth, actually, taking that in a direction for a future episode. Mm. Yeah? Like, yeah, absolutely. And particularly, just in conclusion, the, it does cross over with a lot of other consumer products mm. that are wearable products. Interesting, and so interesting. Yeah. Okay. Next from me, I sometimes feel like we... Uh, actually, no, maybe I should jump into two more bigger topics, seeing as you just went down healthcare. Maybe I should go into something bigger. So this is an interesting... First up, I'm actually going to put two topics together okay. um, loosely uh, and on the subject of lots of data. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an interesting article on Motherboard, but it originally came from Das Magazin in German. Mm-hmm. And I have already been told by some Germans that the translation... Misses some detail, but uh. still, it's an interesting article, but maybe take some of it with a pinch of salt, as they say. This is about the data used by, uh, largely, the Trump and Brexit campaign, mm-hmm. uh, and the company, Cambridge Analytica, yes, who have suddenly become very infamous in the space of less than a couple of years, gone from sort of nothing to... Um, Suddenly, on the voice of every voice of everyone's lips, on the anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah, um, and this actually name. ties nicely, I think, in our last episode, or maybe I talked about one of my podcasts about the head of the digital campaign from the Clinton campaign, mm. um, and just how, in some respects, they ran a very traditional campaign, as traditional as digital campaigning is, and actually the. Cambridge Analytica works in a very different way and a little bit more insidious. 
Um, I don't really go into much detail in my coverage here, but it's quite a long article mm. that really does a lot of quite fascinating but slightly scary matching of data. None of it is necessarily rocket science. For example, here is a quote jumping out at me. Followers of Lady Gaga are probably extroverts, whilst those who liked philosophy tend to be introverts. I mean, that in itself is not... That's kind of from the University of Stating the Obvious. But the way that they then used these sets of data to target particular groups. So it was in places. And one interesting thing a lot of people said about the Trump campaign was that they didn't even bother on some areas. It's just like the data showed them there was no point even trying. So let's focus more effort on the areas and topics that are going to win us the most um, the most uh, mindset. And that was kind of the interesting thing about how they run the campaign. And despite sometimes the kind of um, the the front person, i.e., Mister Mister Donald J. Being coming across as a bit of an idiot a lot of the time, he actually has a lot of smart people behind him mm. with varying levels of ethical. <laughs> Can I just clarify something? Yeah. Just just because I haven't read the article, so these were who these were his election team collecting data for. Well, they're actually consultants, and right. ironically, they're all British, which right. is kind of strange yeah. that a bunch of British people probably won the election for him, mm-hmm. but. Um, yeah, and the aim was to use this to influence how people would vote, or to track how people would vote, or sort of. It's not necessarily to influence, although it mm. is slightly. It's more about, well, actually, no, it is, but it's more about focusing on topics and especially areas where those top, where those certain topics are important mm-hmm. to, and then you know you've seen how he does this even now he's president of banging on about a particular topic until you almost. Like you forget what facts used to be. Right. So, for example, one example I think in here somewhere it was about um, talking about cars made in America. They mm. discovered that that issue resonated very strongly mm. with a particular group of disillusioned voters. So, keep going on about it. And I suppose you are influencing their vote. It, saying influencing the vote sounds very sinister, but this yeah. is actually quite simple, quite really. Like you just. Yeah. You are influencing their vote, but it's not in a sinister way. It's, well, it is and it isn't, but anyway. <laughs> well, you're, you're determining people's priorities and you're, yeah. you're talking to them, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and the interesting thing is actually even with some of the people behind this, they almost it's like that typical, uh, typical thing with academics where they have an idea and go, isn't this great? And then other people kind of twist it and then the academic kind of goes, oh, that's not what I expected to happen. So. Yeah, I mean, related to this, and maybe it's, it's answered in the article, I'm clarifying me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is, with the exception of Michael Moore, all the people that projected the election outcome were wrong. So this is the other interesting thing, is because um, there was a lot of criticism about recent elections and votes, saying that... Uh, that uh, polling was generally wrong. Mm. And it, so a couple of things that get covered here is, one, it's a more different way of... Well, it's not polling. Mm-hmm. Polling is, is problematic, firstly, because often people don't always say what they feel. So what is polling? Is that asking people how they're going to vote? Yeah, right. yeah. And people often, if it's a, especially if it's a controversial issue or figure, will mm. often say the things that they expect is like what you want them to say. Right. 
And also they've found that there's a lot of difference between the quality of data on internet voting and phone uh, phone internet polling and phone polling. Right. This isn't polling. This is actually just using data that's already available. Okay. And that's the difference. Right. Um, I think polling is flawed. Mm. Data is not flawed. Data, in fact, is... Yeah. But um, anyway, and we've obviously seen a lot of sort of tech outcry against various things that Trump's been up to, but it's also interesting to see that tech is on all sides. Um, yeah, and it's a very interesting article. And actually now the company, this is probably more worrying... The company is now receiving inquiries from Switzerland, Germany, and Australia. Um, and I suppose so far, well, so one of its board members is Steve Bannon, oh. who is, but, but also, I don't know, business is business to some people, no matter how they manifest it. True. But I mean, I, I don't know who is employing them in Germany and Switzerland, but um, I get the impression that any kind of consultant, especially in this field, is not necessarily politically motivated. I think they're just money motivated and they'll go to the highest bidder. And if they happen to also win a campaign for a, um, a different kind of political group, then I don't think they care. And it would be interesting to see if it could work from a different side of politics. But So right. just sort of feeding into that, one other thing I want to cover... Um, because you know, there's a lot of data being collected on us and things like that right now, and a lot of it is down to uh, these sort of very verbose, complex um, terms of use policies mm. that we know no one reads um, and no one pays any attention to, apart from the sorts of people who care about that kind of thing. Um, and that's half the problem, that we're agreeing to lots of things without actually realising what we're agreeing to. And this is, this is from about a month ago now, and I would actually really like to follow up with this uh, post to see um, if they've done any others. But this is a, a lawyer who rewrote the Instagram terms of use in plain English. So kids, and I had a lot of people reply to me saying, not just valuable mm. to kids, would know the privacy yeah. rights. And he's actually written it, uh, he, she, uh, she. Okay. She uh, rewrote the terms of use um, in ways that a lot of people would understand. Um, and it kind of more summarised, I suppose. Interesting. Just uh, If you scroll up, it says, and I'll read it out just for clarity, members of Generation Z or Z can spend up to nine hours a day sharing photos on Instagram, consuming content on YouTube, and talking to friends on Snapchat. Just don't ask them to get excited about Facebook. Nine hours. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> when you consider they're, they're at school, like how many hours a day? Six, seven? Well, they're probably doing it whilst they're at school. Um, <laughs> but, so anyway, I'd like to actually see what else they have written up because it's an important, I think it's one of these, the education on, not, like there's a lot of focus at the moment on education for coding, but I actually think like digital citizenship or citizenry, however you want to describe it, mm. is another important issue. Like, what happens to your data and things like that. And mm. I am not casting any judgment on whether I agree with how these companies operate, because frankly, personally, I understand some of these issues and they don't bother me personally. Right. But the fact, but I understand what's going on, and there's other people. And you don't. understand why it bothers some people. No, well, yes, I do. Mm. But um, what I'm saying is more that there's a lot of people who. Um, are not even aware, and I think that should be educated better in schools too. Interesting. Mm. Can I give you a little anecdote there? Sure. Um, I'll be very brief. Um, I saw something recently where a mother was talking about how her son um, 
she picked up her son's phone and it had some explicit photos from presumably his younger girlfriend. And the girlfriend was 14, 15, and he was 16. And by law, and there may be some exceptions in some countries, but by law in Australia where this was this happened, that's actually child pornography um, because it's of the ages. And then it, then it became, um, you know, her talking about it and saying, you know, hey, this issue, you know, it's, it's, it's my family too. This is happening all the time. It's not just over there in America. People were saying, well, actually, the fact that you had his phone in your possession yeah. and you knew about it, you were condoning it by yeah. law. Like, it yeah. becomes this really yeah. where people, you know, you could take this further legally. Yeah. But, of course, there was no evil intent there. The intent was to raise the issue and the bigger issue about... And that's what makes me think of it, the, the, the terms and conditions that people mm. don't understand. If you sit, I, I wonder if, if young people get taught at school or somewhere... I don't think so. Um, that that is actually technically child pornography, and you can go, you can be on the sex offenders registry. Yeah, I mean these are not new issues; yeah. just it's much easier to find out about mm. them these days. Anyway, what's your next topic of discussion, Kate? Um, I've forgotten. <laughs> well, open up your list. Let, on me, <laughs> let me have a look on my little list. Um, I think my next topic is just a quick one, which is just um, an interesting little piece of information I came across. Um, maybe you jump to your next one while I, 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 I get it up. Chris. Okay. I would like to talk about failure. Next. Okay. Firstly, um, and I found this very interesting, and this has been around the internet a little bit in certain communities, um, RethinkDB, darlings of the NoSQL distributed database world a couple of years ago, seemingly being used everywhere, suddenly uh, closed down. They closed down their business side anyway, um, and uh, the, one of the founders wrote a very interesting post on why they failed. Uh, and in a, in a follow-up of good news, the core product has now become an Apache project, which sort of guarantees at a certain level of stewardship, which is good. Okay. But it's a very interesting article, and I worked for an open source database company as well, and a lot of this was very familiar to me, covering topics of why they failed. Things like market fit, competing, I guess a time, time immemorial uh, anecdote on competing with bigger players, like in this case Oracle and MongoDB, who are not necessarily better than you. In fact, technically they're often worse than you, but it doesn't matter, and just how important that is. Um, metrics. Uh, what to measure with metrics, um, especially in terms of open source software, because, hey, we've got 5 million downloads, but in terms of a software product where people don't have to pay for it, mm. so what? Um, oh, so it's free, okay. Yeah, well, it was typical kind of open source commercialization. Then kind of looking, also in a really interesting topic about comparing company sizes versus revenue mm -hmm. and um, sort of just comparing, you know, often when a project is successful, people just instantly think, oh, you're successful. You've got 20 staff. Like, you must be raking it in. And it's actually not always true. And they do some very interesting comparisons of them compared to companies like Red Hat and Oracle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then just other meta questions okay. about why they decided what they did. And, yeah, it's a really interesting article, actually. If you've ever considered... Um, if you ever considered starting an open source developer tool and trying mm. to monetize it, or, and possibly even more relevant to you, you've ever criticized how one that you like is run, I recommend you read this article because it will explain quite a lot to you. Um, and just on the other subject of failure, a very different topic, just because I liked <laughs> it, 
and and I still I find it because I never watched it I find it very hard to separate the uh, reality from the lie here but this uh, there's an article on Medium from Cards Against Humanity about their Super Bowl ad and why it failed and I I, I I'm confused by this because I didn't watch the Super Bowl and I'm not entirely sure if they had an ad and it failed and why would it not or did they never had an ad they never had an ad in the first place and they wrote an article about how and I'm so confused by yeah. what actually is reality but I think this was the point the whole point was this fake news thing right so it doesn't matter if there was an ad or not because okay. that was kind That's of their the point issue. anyway but it's you know in, in, in some respects like the Rethink article was a deadly serious article about how they failed and why mm. and then this one is just a very funny one about how they failed and why and there's some great uh, there's some great <laughs> snippets like um, overconfidence in the model so that basically the ad was a potato with some words on it what do the words say we'll come to that oh. uh, and so first like the overconfidence in the model so they hired an agency to look into what America likes and potatoes are well liked and so they decided to go with the potato. And then, of course, the follow-up to that is it has absolutely nothing to do with the product. <laughs> it's just, um, so it's almost a how not to. <laughs> for super well, products. yes and no, not really. How much uh, do people spend on this? Well, it depends. And then it's like, um, we didn't add music. And our concepts for the ad, we imagined cool music like the Rolling Stones. Unfortunately, we spent all our money buying an ad spot and couldn't afford the one and a half million licensing fee for Sympathy Jeez. for the Devil. We forgot to mention our product. Um, and then, <laughs> and what did you just say? Oh, because then they said it wasn't clear enough, so we wrote advertisement on the potato uh, and things like that. And I'm still not 100% sure what the actual truth in this is or not. It's actually pretty funny. But one thing I've always loved about Cars Against Humanity is whatever you think about the game, and if you've never heard of it, it's an offensive party game, and hardcore gamers hate it because it's just dumb. Whatever you think about the game, the company are masters at free or cheap or marketing um, mm. and they've done some amazing, some wonderful things in the past and this is a great post to have a read of so did you find your final topic to discuss Kate? I did yeah sorry okay. about that I am um, I got a bit excited and forgot got excited about <laughs> potatoes clearly um, <laughs> this, is a- this is actually uh, it's kind of related I okay. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's actually quite funny or well, I thought it was funny um, there was a big kind of like you know, a big hype moment where people said, oh, there's this launch happening in Lisbon for this new AI company called Rocket AI. And it's like this big company. And some of the people attending were like people from Google DeepMind, OpenAI, um, Facebook, AI Research, Google Brain, Stanford, MIT, like big kind of people involved in the scene. And it was to the extent that there was a speaker, there were people, you know, very learned people in, in the deep science side of it. There were speakers, you know, there was all sorts of things. There were, and as a consequence, people were tweeting about this event. People were, you know, hashtags and all sorts of things going on. And um, it, it turned out... Oh, I went to that building that where it happened. Okay. Scroll up, that's where I went to the party for the homebrew thing actually <laughs> you, you went to a homebrew party I know which was equally well that's that's interesting okay it turned out that the actual company which was called Rocket AI as I said yeah. um, never actually existed yeah I remember and this, just yeah. to give you the, the run in I'll read this bit out and of course we'll have the link so you can read it your letter yeah, yeah. email to RS3Ps to party 316 as a consequence 46 people emailed in their resumes they had five la- large name brand 
VCs um, contacting them about funding. The event was covered in Twitter, Facebook, Hacker News, Reddit, Quora, Medium, etc. They spent a mere eight hours actually planning this event. They spent $79 on a domain, $417 on alcohol and snacks. And a police fine. A police fine. <laughs> um, and out of this, like the, uh, if you base the metrics on engagement and you know potential funding, that the value is you know tens of millions, right? And the product never existed. So just so this is actually very closely related to the whole mm. cognitive thing, mm. and this is not an original way of doing things. Like there's a classic story of a band, I think Brinsley Schwartz or something like that, who are on Stiff Records. Uh, they have a couple of famous members who went on to do other things, but it was the same. They booked out Madison Square Gardens, and the band never existed, mm. and it was just a big hype thing. But right. so the interest it does like. So when you say the product never existed, like does it now or was no, it just literally no. just to kind of show up? Yeah. For, okay. And, and this is the thing. I mean, I get probably a minimum, like it's not that many yet, but maybe 20 emails a week, pictures about AI stuff. Mm. And most of it, I've got no, either the, um, the company's in stealth mode, so it tells you very little, or I've got no idea what they're talking about, you know. It's, you know, and I read, I do read things, but it's so inaccessible sometimes, or, or the actual, what it's measuring, or how it's measuring, or, you know, what it's, the purpose of it. It's so kind of either single issue, or niche, or not terribly relevant to a lot of people, mm. you kind of go, hmm. Really? <laughs> okay, Kate, okay. this has been a nice episode, a nice wrapping up episode. Yeah. As I said, we're going to move on to a slightly different format in the future, and I'm going to be back doing some more writing um, soon. So uh, we'll be kind of probably going back and forth a bit more with about stuff we've written mm. about. So just as a quick wrap up, any articles that you've, either articles you've written that you want to quickly mention, or Anything you want to say about places you're going to or working on or meeting over the next few weeks? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Firstly, you probably know I've been working with Nextpack, which is a smartphone and smart device company working on modular solutions where they're basically putting modular cases on the back of smartphones and iPads and things like that that can do a range of sort of connected device functions from monitoring um, air quality to breathalyzer tests to all sorts of stuff. They're actually finally, in the next few weeks, getting their first batch to their um, Kickstarter funders, which has, you know, been a long time coming. It's been quite a difficult product to manufacture. Um, and I'm sure they'll be telling us more about that. As, oh, as so will you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my next big trip is actually to Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, um, I'll be talking with lots of people there, both the kind of the big, the big companies and some startups. And um, please feel free to reach out if you want to have a chat there. I look forward mm-hmm. to it to talking to people. Um, from me, so just two other articles I wrote. I did automating screenshots and documentation for CodeChip. You can find the link on my blog on CodeChip. I also did an article for SitePoint on Java free Android, mm-hmm. other native coding solutions for Android that aren't Java. Uh, and likewise, I will also be um, in Barcelona for Mobile World Congress mm-hmm. at the same time if you want to reach out to me. And then I have quite a few speaking slots coming you up do, in do. the near future. And I'll mention at least the next couple of weeks okay. just because we might get ahead. So firstly, I'm going to be talking again my increasingly infamous documentation crash course for developers at PyCon, so Python conference in Slovakia, in Bratislava, mm-hmm. which I'm looking forward to. And then about two days later... I will be doing the same talk at Voxed Vienna 
in Vienna, unsurprisingly. And then finally, at the end of March, I'm going to be talking about the Atom Editor at Code Motion in Tel Aviv, which I'm really looking forward to. Mm. And then I have actually quite a few more talks coming up, but I won't go any further than that because you'll probably hear from us before then. Yeah, I've got a few small talks coming up, but they're in your all, so I'll, um, I'll put them in the links. Okay. Um, and so if you enjoy what we do, please go to gregerismammal.com slash podcast to find previous episodes and show notes. Um, please find us on YouTube or in the iTunes store mm-hmm. and rate or comment. And if you especially like what we do, please go to gregerismammal.com slash support, make a donation or buy some merchandise. Buy us a coffee. I'm going to make Buy us a coffee. <laughs> in <laughs> effect. Give us a donation that is equivalent to the price of a coffee. That's what And we yeah. live in Berlin, so coffee is not that expensive. <laughs> um, but uh, please do. I'm actually going to be getting some merchandise made up in some small batches very soon to Excellent. take to conferences and things. But for now, you can go and have a look. We have quite a nice selection of chinchillas and witty comments. Are you self-employed? I have a great T-shirt that says, I'm not lazy, I'm self-employed. Surely you want to... I should be wearing it in the video, but I'm not. I'm actually wearing a uh, Telegram T-shirt. So, <laughs> But for now, this is Chris Chinchilla on Twitter at Chris Chinch saying thank you for listening and watching and goodbye. And Kate Lawrence, that's at Kate underscore Lawrence. Kate with a C. Kate with a C. Lawrence with a W. Saying fairly well and enjoy the rest of your weekend.